0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India's government, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, has made a controversial move to usurp power from Jammu and Kashmir, the nation's only Muslim-majority state. Modi says the move marked a new era that would free the region of terrorism and separatism. The move sparked outcry and unrest over the divided Himalayan territory, which both India and Pakistan claim in its entirety. Here to discuss the downsizing of Kashmir and the implications is Christine Fair, an Associate Professor in the Security Studies program within the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and a respected expert in counter-terrorism and South Asia. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Thank you for having me. If you could start by giving me a bit of a background on the situation, and I'd like to know what was your reaction when you heard the announcement? Were you surprised at all by this development?
1: Very quickly, by way of background, I don't think of India's move as an international move. Pakistan has for years claimed that it has equities or some sort of Claim to Kashmir, and it simply doesn't. Neither the Indian Independence Act nor the Radcliffe Commission, which governed the partition of the Raj into India and Pakistan, gave Pakistan any claim whatsoever to Kashmir. Moreover, because Kashmir was a princely state, it was allowed to choose which dominion it would join, and Pakistan had signed a standstill agreement with the sovereign of Kashmir, Maharaja Hari Singh which it violated. And despite that standstill agreement, which obliged it to not invade Kashmir, it in fact did. As a result of that, the uh, sovereign asked for India's assistance in fending off the Pakistani invaders. India agreed to do so only on the provision that it accede to India. So India has had an instrument of accession, which actually entitles India to all of Kashmir. At the end of that war, Pakistan had about a third, and India had the remainder, or thereabouts. And then in 1963, Pakistan illegally ceded part of that territory to China. Right. So I tend to speak very strictly about Kashmir as an Indian territory, and I don't entertain any of Pakistan's claim to the territory whatsoever. Mm. So going to this particular move... As I said, you know, India had this instrument of accession, and when India's Constitution was finalized, Article 370 enshrined that instrument of accession. All of the laws that were present at the time of accession pertaining to the domestic affairs of the state—that is to say, not pertaining to foreign policy or or defense—that those laws would, for the most part, continue to govern— now, one could argue that over a time, India has used a variety of ways to change, in some measure, the legal regime in Kashmir. But Article Three Hundred and Seventy basically said, Kashmiris are to live under this mixture of colonial and Dogra rule. I mean, the, the king was a was a Dogra, which refers to a lineage of kings. So, from my point of view, Three Hundred and Seventy was supposed to be temporary. And Mm -hmm. I am not terribly exercised that the government is trying to get rid of 370 altogether. In some sense, as long as Article 370 was there, the citizens of this state were always going to be second-class citizens. I find it kind of ironic that liberals are championing Article 370. Having said that, the ways in which the state got rid of Article 370 is very disturbing. And... Although there are very good arguments that liberals could make about getting rid of Article 370, and as I myself have made, because I do consider myself to be a liberal, the state did not do it for those reasons. They did it as a part of a Hindu nationalist anti-Muslim agenda. Mm. So I think the problem is, from my point of view to summarize it, it was the right decision undertaken for the wrong reasons, in a dubious matter, by a regime that had dubious motivations.
0: Mm. To get to part B of my initial question, were you surprised by it happening?
1: (laughs) So actually, yes and no, because I was in India when it went down.
0: Whoa.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. And so it's actually even funnier. For the last 10 months, I was supposed to take a bunch of cadets and instructors from West Point to a variety of places in India, including Kashmir. So we had been pushing the permissions and, you know, bottom line is about four days before our trip, we are told trip is off. To Kashmir? No, to India. Oh, oh
0: okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and i had never had this happen. I've been going to India for 30 years, never seen this. And mm. the organizer freaks out and, and uh, he says, what do they mean? I said, so, I think they mean the trip is off so the organizer calls the individual who made this call which which was um a defense official in the indian embassy and they basically negotiated that as long as we took kashmir off of our agenda we would be allowed to continue i'd never seen this in Ah. my entire 30 years and then when we get to india i'm watching the stuff and Massive airlifting of a variety of troops. In total, there were maybe around 40,000 additional troops of a variety of stripes. A lot of different air assets were moved to Kashmir. And uh, most importantly, there's this seasonal pilgrimage where Hindus go and visit this ice formation that resembles a, a phallus attributed to the Lord Shiva. Sunday night when I saw the tweets coming from different politicians that they were being garrowed at home, I'd I'd say to my colleague, I said, dude, they're pulling 370. (laughs) Wow, yeah. And I was actually in a meeting with a fairly senior Indian administrative official when the decision was taken. By the time the meeting was over, they said it's been done. I had a pretty strong feeling going in, that something very momentous was going to happen. Because mm. in my 30 years, I had never experienced that sort of email traffic yeah. about a fairly routine trip. Yeah, they were clear we were not going to Kashmir. <laughs> they made it very clear.
0: The, the process that they did was very kind of interesting and worrying to, as well to, to shut down as much as they could travel to the area to turn off internet access to cut the phone lines
1: landlines in, in yeah. particular which yeah. had never been done before and
0: to oppose a curfew and to essentially have an information blackout i mean i was i was listening to um, a guardian journalist saying that the only way that they could file stories from there was to fly to delhi
1: In some ways, the only thing that is surprising is that it happened now and not previously. Really? Yeah, because this has always been a BJP manifesto item, right? It's been in their manifesto for as long as you can find a manifesto. The second thing that will probably happen is what they call the imposition of a uniform civil code, which is basically getting rid of a provision that allows Muslims to have self-governance over issues of family affairs, like marriage Mm. and divorce and and birth, Muslim personal law. So that will probably be the next thing on the chopping block. I was expecting them to do this actually in Modi's first term, where his mandate seemed to be more robust. But in that first term, he was kind of avoiding a lot of these communal issues, and he was focusing more on an economic message. So from my point of view, the only thing that's really surprising is that it happened this late in the game. Mm -hmm. And I think... There were two near-term precipitants. The first was Trump's efforts to get the Taliban to the negotiating table so that he can justify a withdrawal in advance of the 2020 election. The Indians have long known that what happens in Afghanistan doesn't stay. So during the Taliban period, groups that targeted India co-located with them, trained with them, of course, with the support from Pakistan's intelligence agencies. And so India is very apprehensive about what a post-U.S. withdrawal future will look like. And part of the Taliban's demands is that they are returned to power without elections. So Indians were very worried about this. And then, of course, I think the immediate, like, this has to happen now, was the meeting that Imran Khan, Pakistan's prime minister, had with President Trump, Mm -hmm. in which President Trump just patently lied and said that Prime Minister Modi had asked him to personally intervene in Kashmir. This is the most outrageous lie that Trump could have told in the Indian context. It's like he took the third rail of Indian politics and just smacked Modi with it. Mm. And the Indian government immediately bristled and and protested and and refuted the account, only to have Trump repeat it some days later. And so I think it was this combination of Trump's Afghan policy, but precipitated by this interest, probably prompted by Trump's dependence upon Pakistan to get this Kashmir exit. These are the two things I think really pulled the lever on the Indian leadership side.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Imran Khan tweeted, I think a few days ago, that <laughs> Trump's offered to essentially go in and do his thing. I gather by your laugh you don't think that that's a either a good solution or a sincere offer?
1: Well, first of all, it's absurd. Yeah. Because as I said, Pakistan has no equities in Kashmir. The only thing it has ever done for Kashmiris is get them dead, right? It has supported a menagerie of terrorist groups that have killed Kashmiris in large number. Because of Pakistan's reliance upon terrorism in the state, we have this enormous counterinsurgency grid festooned with trigger-happy Muslim-phobic security forces that— when afraid and when provoked, shoot Kashmiris who are unarmed. So there's nothing that Pakistan's contributed. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, the international community should just tell Pakistan to sit down and shut up because it simply has no role to play in Kashmir. Does this mean that how India has behaved is justified? Not necessarily. But I think if you're India, what are you supposed to do when you have a neighbor that has, since 1947— and very intensively since 1990, dispatch terrorists to kill your citizens. I mean, are you not supposed to have this counterinsurgency grid? What are you supposed to do? Mm. So it's basically made up of three very distinct geographies. So one is Jammu, which is Hindu dominated, but has several districts that are populated by a majority of Muslims. Then you have the Kashmir itself, which is the center of which is the, the so-called Kashmir Valley. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelmingly Muslim, but it also has an important number of districts that are primarily Hindu. Then you have Ladakh. And Ladakh um, has two districts. One is Lay and it's overwhelmingly Buddhist. And then you have Kargil, which is also overwhelmingly Muslim. So when people talk about Kashmir they tend to conflate this very complicated geography with very complicated demography to really six districts out of 22, right? I sort of object to that conflation. So what they did was they took Jammu in Kashmir. They separated it out from Ladakh. Ladakh is going to be a union territory without a local assembly. So it's going to be governed directly from the center. And the Ladakhis are very happy about this because forever they took umbrage with being yoked to the politics in Kashmir. Okay. Yeah. So Jammu and Kashmir are now gonna be a union territory with a local assembly. But the difference is when it was a state, the law enforcement officials would answer to the chief minister of the state. Now it answers to the center in Delhi. Mm. And so one of the arguments is that with the central control over the security forces, that it can more able control the security situation. And the reason why they think this is that the police are pretty dirty. The police, as well as local politicians, take money from all sides, from the militant groups, from the ISI, also from India's various intelligence agencies. And so you'll see in the valley palatial homes by politicians that completely is discordant with their legitimate income structure. So the whole place is just bought and sold. So that's another goal of this move – is to shake up fundamentally the political arrangements in Jammu and Kashmir, and particularly there have been two families that alternate control of the state, which the BJP hates dynastic politics. Yeah. So there are a lot of motivations, but I think when the apart from getting rid of 370 itself and the problematic way in which it did it and the motivations with which it did so, the reordering of the state into two union territories, I think really needs to be understood from a security lens.
0: So what about also revoking at the same time um, Article 35A, which banned people from outside the state from buying property there?
1: So again, this is a move I fundamentally support because first of all, there's so many problems with this law. Yeah. First, if you're a female and you marry a non-resident of that state, you forego your right to own property, as do your children. Whereas if a male marries a person from outside of that state, he forgoes nothing. So there's an inherent misogyny in Mm, the law. mm. The other thing that people have not paid much attention to is that in the circa 1990, there was a mass, well, there's no, there's really no other thing to call it, just an ethnic cleansing or even a genocide of this Hindu community in Jammu and Kashmir called the pundits. As a consequence of that, By 1990, anywhere between 90 and 150,000 Kashmiri pundits fled the state, and they've never been able to return. And this is in addition to those that actually perished, right? So those folks still nominally own land and houses in the state, but they, A, can't return because of the security situation. And if they were to sell the land, they could have only sold it to people from the state. Yeah, And these would likely be people that were involved in genociding them anyway, and they would never get the full market price. So you've got Kashmiris who really can't move forward economically outside of the state because they couldn't sell their land at anything but – a fire sale to people who genocided them, right? So, this is one issue. Getting rid of 35A will allow those pundits to finally get a good price and allow them to continue building their lives outside of India. It also has had the effect of suppressing investment because if you want to go in and build a factory or some sort of job generating enterprise, you couldn't buy land. Mm. So, a lot of people hope that getting rid of 35A will stir some sort of investment in the state. People who are upset about this, I'm not sympathetic to their repines, they will say that this is going to create a demographic shift in the state, that there's going to be non-Kashmiris coming in. That it's
0: a way of pushing out the Muslim population. That was the the line of argument that I heard.
1: Well, the thing is, it's sort of absurd, because for that to happen, they have to sell their land. Mm. This is a free market. They're not going in, and they're not going to confiscate land. But if people sell their land, they are fundamentally entitled to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm also not sympathetic to these arguments that there should be pristine demographically untouched areas. To me, this is the same kind of argument that racists in the United States make in a democracy that is plural, that's multi-ethnic, multi-religious. This idea of having these pure redoubts, they don't make sense to me. And so these are not arguments that appeal.
0: Mm. But at the same time, I, th- I think that leads the conversation to talk about Hindu nationalism there. Yes. Because you've got to look at this at the lens of the BJP pushing a very Hindu agenda.
1: This this is why I said, for my view, it's the right decision done by the wrong people for the wrong reasons (laughs) in dubious ways, right? Article 370 is not a privilege to live under this admixture of colonial and family fiefdom legality, right? For example... Some of the protections and processes that are available to other Indians are not available to Kashmiris just by virtue of them being Kashmiri. So Mm. local bodies elections did not exist in Kashmir. So from my point of view, I'm a liberal. I don't see Article 370 as a good thing. In the same way, I didn't think Triple Talak was a good thing. But when it takes place in this context of a Hindu chauvinist attack on one religious community, it's difficult to see this as a liberal move as opposed to a communal move. Like to put it another way, if I were an American and I'm a Democrat, as I am, most of us would concede that we need immigration reform. Mm -hmm. But if a Republican undertakes immigration reform, it will most certainly have an ethnic cleansing agenda, right? This particular Republican government wants to make sure that brown people don't come into the country. So if we were to compare an immigration reform regime between Democrats and Republicans, 80% of it would be the same. But I'm going to object to a Republican-led one because it has this ethnic cleansing component. I understand the need for it, but I don't trust their motives. And I think for many Muslims and for many liberal critics of the BJP, this is how they view this. It's difficult for them to celebrate the removal of a regressive regime when the motivation itself is regressive.
0: So where do you think that this is going to go? Because clearly this isn't the end game for Modi and the BJP plans. Pakistan are appealing to the UN Security Council (laughs) to do something about this situation. Has China weighed in yet? Where where do you think this is going to go? Because China's got some disputed territory.
1: Well, they own territory. They're they're in legal – okay, so I'm I'm unpacking it briefly – I mean, Pakistan is going to howl and scream. I'm very glad that the UN Security Council told them this is not your problem because Mm -hmm. it's not their problem. And to be very clear, Pakistan's position is preposterous. It also abuses the Kashmiris under its control. But unlike India, it doesn't let media in. We have very little access to the things that have happened to Kashmiris. On the
0: other side of the line of control. Exactly.
1: And then Pakistan howls and screams about the politicians in Kashmir that have been under house arrest. Pakistan has put into full arrest many more politicians for a variety of reasons. And then Pakistan's own genocidal policies towards minorities in its country are also notable. Mm. So I don't take Pakistan's repines remotely seriously. Going to the China part, so if we were to look at a map, there's a line of control. And in 1963, a part of what the Indians will call Ladakh was ceded illegally to China. In other words, Pakistan stole land and gave some of it to China. So on Tuesday, the day after this was announced, which was August five, so on Tuesday, August six, Ahmet Shah clarified what parts of Kashmir this was action— Was claimed by this, yeah. Yeah. So he said it's— Per all of it. What's interesting about this move, and I don't know if it was an accident, because it probably was, because they're not any more clever than Trump. When they do things cleverly, it's almost always by by Brownian motion. By dividing Ladakh from Jammu and Kashmir, they also separated out these disputes. So when the whole thing was just a mess, it was a trilateral dispute. India says, this is all my territory, China says no. And then also importantly, in the 1962 war that India fought with China, China seized territory. So China is right now sitting in possession of territory that India claims is its own. And how it is that you had all of these disputed boundaries with China is is a long but interesting story. Amit Shah says it pertains to all. So on the Pakistani side, basically, we're talking about the extension of what would be Jammu and Kashmir. And the part that China has occupied is an Aksai Chin, which will be part of lei. Mm. So by bifurcating the state in the way in which it did, it also took what was a trilateral dispute and made it into two bilateral disputes, right? Yeah. So China is very derisive with India. What China has said was that India is making a lot of unilateral domestic law that infringes upon its interests. But ultimately, it has no effect because China is literally sitting on that territory.
0: To be continued.
1: To be continued.
0: Yeah. And nationalism? Do you think that Modi's got a next move?
1: Yeah, he does. I mean, this has been wildly popular. It's really important to understand it's wildly popular, not only amongst his base, but ordinary Indians.
0: Did you see that when you were there? Was this celebrating in the streets kind of thing?
1: You don't see it in the streets, but you see it on social media, gloating. Mm. Uh, There's just a lot of gloating, yeah. Because there is this perception that the previous government appeased Muslims. I find this preposterous because if you actually look at this, the the statistics on Muslims um, and the data on their access to opportunity and outcome, Muslims routinely fall between what's called scheduled castes and tribes and other backward classes. So in other words, they are consistently at the bottom of the bottom. So if this is the result of appeasement, <laughs> I hate to see mm. you know, what the status of being a Muslim would be without such appeasement. So this is wildly popular, even amongst ordinary Hindus who are not a part of his base. And also I want to point out there are some Kashmiris that are happy about this. Kashmiris have been forced out of the valley. They're, they live all over the state. And and Kashmiris also include these pundits. So there are some Kashmiri businessmen, and many of the Kashmiris outside of India are businessmen, who are really hoping that this is going to galvanize investment. Once the oppression is lifted, we're going to see how much opposition there is to this. It's very hard to see the opposition right now because of the oppression. But I strongly suspect that the next move that the BJP is going to make is what they call uniform civil code, which is Again, getting rid of this provision of Muslims to exercise what they call uh, personal law. Yeah. And we've also seen there's another part of the BJP manifesto, which is to rebuild the temple to Ram, which was destroyed in Ayodhya in uh, 1992. And we've already seen some movements afoot to make that happen. The chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, where Ayodhya is located, is a very provocative swami, Mm -hmm. He's very Muslim-phobic, would be a very nice, genteel word for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he espouses such things as, because the Taj Mahal was built by Muslims, it should be destroyed, and that's also in his state. And some of his followers actually did attempt to do damage to the Taj Mahal. So I think we're going to see moves towards consolidating the other BJP manifesto items, like the Uniform Civil Code and rebuilding the Ram Temple at Ayodhya. Yeah. And the latter, I shudder to think about the communal violence that might possibly ensue.
0: It'll be interesting, but a bit worrying to see how things develop then. Yeah. Thanks for your time today. No, thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to the podcast in Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may find your podcasts. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. You can follow Christine Fair on Twitter. She is at CChristineFair. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.